Welcome back to another week in the world of Angel Insights, brought to you by Syndicate Room. This is the show that dives inside the world of some of the most prominent angels to reveal their tips and tactics when it comes to funding some of the hottest startups. Now, joining me today, I'm thrilled to welcome John Alexander. Now, where to start on John's incredible career? John is the founder of Seaboard Group, which he founded in 1975 and led right through to its sale in 2008, which is when he made the move into angel investing. However, John did have venture experience, having got involved with the Kiyuga Venture fund as early as 1994. Genuinely though, this is an immensely hard intro to do due to the sheer scale of achievements John has made, so do find the link in the show notes to see the vast amount that John has achieved. However, for now, I'm delighted to hand over to the man himself, John Alexander. Well, John, welcome to the show. It's absolutely fantastic to have you on today. Thank you so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. Now, I'd love to start today by hearing a little about you and how you made your move into the angel investing world from a career in operations. So give us a quick snapshot of you and how you made the move. Well, back in uh, the early 90s, uh, we organized a venture fund in Ithaca, New York. It's known as the Cayuga Venture Fund. And its purpose was to invest in uh, startup businesses in Ithaca, New York, Tompkins County, and sort of the upstate New York region. Um, and honestly, outside of my very own business, which I worked in since 1975, um, I didn't have any experience at all uh, in investing in other companies. Uh, any money that I had, which was not much, uh, I ended up giving to a broker, and they would invest it in Fortune 500 companies, and that was it. So when the Cuga Venture Fund got started, this got me interested in looking at individual companies. And the model for that particular fund was that there, there was a fund, and the fund makes investments in a por- small portfolio of companies. We're now up to the fifth uh, iteration of that fund. Um, but in addition, you have the opportunity to make side-by-side investments. And that's where it became really interesting, because you could take a deep dive into those companies that held interest, um, and then pick the ones that you wanted to invest in, and, and then place a, place a larger bet. So that's what got me started. Um, and these were companies that were they were labeled certainly as VC type investments, but not all of them were. A fair number of them would be sort of angel type investments by current standards. Um, and some ended up uh, being investments in considerably larger organizations. So that was sort of how I got started. Um, my real start in angel investing um, was when the Red Bear Angels organization got formed just two years ago. Uh, so there were a number of Cornellians, uh, sort of led by a guy named Sam Cezak, um, who felt that if we had a formal organization of investors that could get exposed to and have the opportunity to participate in startups that came out of Cornell, um, that that would be useful to the university and certainly useful to those entrepreneurs, and then hopefully useful also to the investors at some point. So uh, Sam began to circle a number of people who had been involved in Cornell's uh, entrepreneurship program on campus. Um, and, and, and out of that group, uh, which now numbers well over 300, um, he put together a sort of a, uh, a committee, a central committee that would um, review and vet deals before presenting it to the entire group. Um, and that was honestly my, my first real deep exposure to, uh, to angel investing. And it was, it was good because I had other people who I knew um, and whose approach to business I had a, a pretty good knowledge of, um, also vetting the deals. And so honestly, it was a chance. I, I hope they got something from my comments 
I learned a lot from listening to them uh, talk about the initial deals. So that's the sort of the beginning. Many questions there. I mean, one one just to touch on that you just mentioned literally there is in terms of the co-investors giving you confidence with their DD, what was it about them as people that gave you confidence in sharing a deal with them? Was it their experience? Was it their knowledge of a sector? Was it their just past investments? It was... I don't know any of their actual net worth, so I don't know how successful they are. And most investors sound incredibly successful on the phone. So um, <laughs> it wasn't that. That was not um, – it was – in most cases, it was their uh, depth knowledge of a particular uh, area, or whether it's a particular technology, an area of science, and so forth, um, that I knew very little about. Um, but I don't, I don't let a lack of knowledge about the, uh, the industry dissuade me. Um, but it does cause me to be a, a slower investor than some. Uh, and having those men and women on the phone at the same time was really very helpful because my, my learning curve was accelerated. And one of the nice things is they, because we're, we're a sort of a, an investing club, it's a group that's working together for a common good, um, people are pretty patient about taking the time to explain things and, and give you context and background. So I would say it's, it's, it was principally their knowledge of an industry or of a, of, of a category that I really hadn't been exposed to. And, and honestly, those are the most interesting investments, the ones where at the end, um, there's some learning. Absolutely. And, and I want to then discuss at what stage do you tend to invest and then discuss the stages themselves? Because we can constantly have this labeling of pre-seed, seed, bridge, bridge plus, series A, all these different um, uh, labeling functions. So, so first, what stage do you tend to go in and what stage do you find optimal for you now? And then what do you make of this desire to constantly label every, every round? Well, if you're, if you're a big believer in the labels, I'm Probably more of a with within Red Bear Angels. I'm much more of a seed investor. The the, 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 the first round tends to be where I get engaged. Um, I presume that if others have been involved in two or three rounds, they're going to probably if the company is a great company, they're going to continue to fund it, and the opportunities for me are going to be somewhat limited. So if I'm wise, I, I, I want to get involved early on um, in, in a relatively new venture. Um, now that said. Um, I find this this labeling of sort of pre-seed, seed, um, uh, angel, uh, venture, and then on into private equity, which really is a sort of a separate category. But I think that that labeling is something that uh, founders use in order to try and um, qualify an investor or, or to convince the investor that they are qualified uh, because they tend to do investments in a certain category. But I'm not finding those to be... Um, as as helpful as one might think, because uh, there are many uh, businesses that I've had a chance to invest in where they they were initially funded at a level where they were raising, say, a few million dollars in their first major round, and that would typically fit into the sort of the venture category, um, and later came back for rounds uh, that were raised among angel investors. Um, I've been involved in one notably recently, a company called GiveGab, uh, that got started through the Cuga Venture Fund um, and is now an investment that's been uh, picked up by a number of members of the Red Bear Angels. So, and it's an investment that I'm I'm pretty excited about, um, and it appeals to people in both of those categories. And I would say that many of us uh, who are in Red Bear also are in the Cuga Venture Fund and other venture funds. So, I don't think the categories are 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 that important. 
but I do understand why an entrepreneur might use them in order to try and slot an investor into his or her particular investment. That's super interesting that you said about being appealing to both VCs and to you as Red Bear Angels, because quite often uh, what's appealing to an angel isn't to a VC in terms of outcome. And so I, I guess my question to you would be, what's a reasonable and desired outcome for you? Is it the billion dollar startup that all VCs constantly require and say they need to return their fund? Or is it a much more moderate, modest amount? I'd actually be satisfied if just one of my investments became a billion-dollar investment. That'd be great. And I would hope that I took up the majority of the round that led to that. (laughs) Now, that said, uh, in angel investing, at least in in my world, um, I I would look at a return of sort of two to four X in two to four years. That's that's really a little simplistic, um, and it's round numbers, but it's true. Um, we're not trying to get a 10x return. Um, and, and, and most venture capitalists would say a 10x return is kind of the minimum that you want to aim at because not all investments are going to be productive and, and successful. Um, in, in VC uh, type investments, we certainly do go for 10x or, or more if we can. Um, but I don't think things have to be uh, billion dollar enterprises. Uh, and that, you know, these, I'm not only looking for unicorns. In fact, I rarely spend time looking for those. I, I'm interested in companies that have scalability that are going to be able to, that I think can grow well beyond the spreadsheet that their uh, founder has produced in order to induce the investment. Um, but at the same time, what interests me is a company that's got a Uh, a sort of a survivability plan. Um, We see so many uh, companies where the business plan is all oriented around some sort of home run, uh, which is is great and something that I would like to see. But they are also businesses which, if they don't raise another $3 million by October 17th, they're out of business. And that's not interesting to me. Uh, Those those sorts of businesses are too fragile um, and and, and too risky. And, And honestly, even while all the investors might love them, they might not actually have the cash available to invest when that company desperately needs it. Um, it kind of brings you back to that old adage that a um, a failure to plan on your part should not constitute an emergency on my part. Uh, so, so I like businesses that have got a plan that says if things don't work out precisely as we had hoped, then we have a plan B and a plan C. And entrepreneurs who think it through that way um, are better prepared for the for the rocky road that they're certainly going to all in, encounter one way or another. Yeah, a, a risk mitigation plan type thing. Okay, absolutely with you. In terms of um, you said there, like if we startups say if we get this round of funding in eighteen months' time, and if we get this next round, we'll hit these goals. What's your commitment to follow on then as an angel? Do you think angels have a commitment to follow on? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, not just angels. I think venture capitalists have the same commitment. And, 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 and I'm saying that because it's been my experience working with the Cuba Venture Fund that we always plan to keep some dry powder available for subsequent rounds or for bridge rounds that get us to a subsequent round that we might not be able to be the lead in. Um, often we will be the lead in an early round and then we will follow a larger uh, investment group in, in a subsequent round. But I think it's a I think there's a sort of a responsibility to a, to a uh, to an entrepreneur to be there for those subsequent rounds, um, particularly if they indicate that there will be a need for further funding. You know, there is the occasional company that says, 
we need a half a million dollars today. And if we get that, we are, it's, it's, it's a moonshot and we are good to go. And you'll never see us at your doorstep again until we write the check to pay you back with interest. Um, those are few and far between. And, and actually, if someone says that, I'm initially very skeptical because it, it just indicates a lack of awareness of the, uh, of the unknowns that we all run into out there when we're uh, trying to run our businesses. So if you don't follow on then, what are the reasons that you don't? Do you think there's always a commitment no matter what situation? Or do you think it's fair to say when you make your first investment, if you hit these milestones, I will commit a further $10,000 or twenty or whatever the figure is. But do you think it's fair to do a milestone approach? Well, I think the milestones are, there, there are milestones, but I understand that sometimes sales don't come in when you think they will. Um, expenses, frankly, should come in just about where you said they would. Uh, most most reasonable entrepreneurs, if they put a proper team together, can predict expenses within a percent or two. It's the revenue that's tough. But to get to revenue, they have a list of things that they've said they're going to do. Um, and what I want to know is, did they do them? Did they follow through on those things? Did they recruit the people that they said they were going to recruit? Um, did they did they you know did they show did they make the effort? Did they work hard uh, in pursuit of it? I don't. I don't think it's that easy to predict exactly when a when a customer will sign the purchase order. So I wouldn't say that sale, even though sales is really important. And in fact, in many of the businesses that I will invest in, I look for some evidence of sales traction before making the first investment. It may be that the entrepreneur has to offer an eighty percent discount in order to get their first customer on board. But the ultimate proof of product market fit is really somebody bought it for some amount of money. Um, and even if it's the literally the customer purchasing it with their personal credit card, paying $50 a month for six months, it shows that somebody believed in the product enough to, to either write a check or give you their credit card number. Um, and and that, that counts for a lot. So for, for me, that's a very important proof of product market fit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Whether people are willing to pay. Uh, we, we spoke before about kind of the fantastic deal flow that, that you're getting through Red Bear Angels. And, and I do want to discuss before we move into a quick fire in terms of what makes an opportunity in an investment potentially pop to the top and stand out from the rest and and then with such a frothy environment a good frothy environment how do you avoid fear of missing out as an investor when you do pass on opportunities which potentially in a down market of of um, less quality investment opportunities you might have taken uh, so how so first what pops to the top and then how do you avoid the fear well in the end i think with a group like red bear one of the things that helps at the top of the top is seeing a number of other people who i really respect saying they totally get it, um, and, and they're in. Um, when, when, we're, when we go in oversubscribed, of course, those are the ones we seem to always want to have more of. Um, and, and in my case, that's because I, I, I don't know all, all the members of Red Bear, obviously, but I know a core group, and I know how they think. Um, I have some idea of what their investment success has been in the past. So when a, a group of people seems to be – and. I'm a little bit. I'm very aware that groupthink and just sort of following the crowd is not necessarily a great way to invest. But this is a self-selected group. We've chosen to work together, and sometimes they're a little bit quicker on the uptake than I am on some of the new technologies or some of the uh, new markets that I may not be as 
as aware of. So that that's one of the things. Um, another one for me is the, the entrepreneur who really inspires me, whose who's pitch, and I'm, and I'm reluctant to use that word because it, it, it has connotations, but, but they do give pitches. And uh, if, if, if their pitch gets me really excited because you can see that they've got passion and a sort of a fire in the belly, um, to me, that's worth a great deal because I think that is the same attribute when applied to customers that's going to result in sales. So the, the good salesperson slash CEO slash founder uh, is a person that is pretty likely to have success with me. Uh, because I, as I look back on my own career, uh, most of the productive hours that I spent, I spent in the company of a customer, um, talking about our product and our team and our company and why it was the best thing for them. So when they do the same thing as me, I assume they're going to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. And But I'd love to dive into a quick fire round now. So I say a short statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts. How does that sound? 60 seconds or so per one. Terrifying. Terrifying, I, I know, isn't it just? Um, so let's do then FOMO. How do you f- avoid the fear of missing out? Uh, you budget your funds such that you could make a small investment in almost every one of the deals that passes muster. Mm-hmm, absolutely. What's your favorite investing resource? It could be a newsletter, a blog, um, a author in particular. Who's your favorite? Um, I'm pretty polygamous in that area. Um, AngelList and Crunchbase provide a lot of background for me, especially trying to learn about other companies in, in the field. Um, <laughs> I most recently read a wonderful book by Bob Frank uh, called Success and Luck. Um, and as I listen to people talking about their successes and plans, um, I, I, I sort of filter it by, by thinking about the theme of this book, which is there's a role for both uh, luck and skill in, in everyone's career. Um, and I would say the third and, and most prominent in, uh, in recent, recent months um, has been Megan Cross, who's the managing director of Red Bear Angels, because as I look right now around my desk, I need to, uh, I need to expand the surface area. Um, to hold deals. It's a good sign. It's a good sign. Um, and then what do you wish you'd known when you started angel investing that you know now? Well, I wish I'd been born about 25 years later because then I'd be much, much further along the learning curve on digital media and the, the new digital economy. I mean, I was in the software business in 1975, so I guess I, I understood software pretty well. Um, but the, the new digital economy is pretty exciting and most kids are not just learning about it, but experiencing and using it all the way through college and so forth. I, I kind of wish that I was uh, had been born a little bit later so that I'd spent a few more years deeply immersed in that, um, because that's where some of the most exciting opportunities are coming up these days. Mm-hmm. And then let's finish today on your most recent public investment and why you said yes. My most recent public investment. Uh, that was That would have been Apple at 90. Uh, <laughs> no, no, in, in, no, no, in terms of publicly announced. Ah, okay, my most recent one. Well, um, it's actually an example I spoke of earlier. Uh, it's this company called GiveGab, which is a uh, not-for-profit giving platform. Um, it's a company that, to me, was very interesting because they started out as a, soft, as a software as a service that was used to organize volunteers in the community. 
Um, and they found that that was, that was not going to be easy to monetize. So they did a pivot toward sort of fundraising, marketing, and communications. And that's resulted in uh, some real success um, sponsoring and uh, promulgating giving days, days of giving, days of caring, where organizations go out for one day and raise a ton of money. This is an example of a company that started with a venture fund investment um, and just most recently uh, became the uh, object of affection of this Red Bear Angels group. So it's, it, is, it is the most recent one that I've done. Um, I have I actually, I did two almost on the same day. So in, in fairness, uh, there's a company called Eversound, uh, which develops an assisted hearing device for, for elderly um, and allows them to participate more meaningfully in, in life, um, to be able to understand conversations much better, to be able to participate in um, uh, programs, uh, presentations in uh, assisted living centers, in retirement villages and so forth, uh, to watch television, uh, to participate in a panel discussion. And they've come up with a, a really novel product uh, that addresses that need. Um, and this, this, this also was a, 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 uh, an investment that started uh, without an angel group, but then eventually came to the attention of the Red Bear Angels. So just, I just recently made an investment in that one as well. Well, John, it's been an absolute pleasure hearing your journey. And thank you so much for sharing it with us today. I really appreciate it. Harry, lovely to speak with you. I hope, I hope we'll speak again soon. And a huge hand to John for giving up his time today to appear on the show. And a big thank you to Megan at RBA for making the introduction, which allowed us to record the show. And if you love the episode today and want to see more from Angel Insights and Syndicate Room, then simply head over to syndicateroom.com, where you can find a whole load more articles, resources, and podcast episodes all dedicated to angel investing. As always, we so appreciate your support and look very forward to bringing you next week's episode.